You are listening to the Live Diet Free Podcast. I'm your host, Esther Avant, personal trainer, sports nutritionist, and weight loss coach. I'm here to help you lose weight for the last time without sacrificing your quality of life to do it. So pop your headphones in, go for a walk, and learn how to become the healthiest, happiest, and most confident version of yourself. Welcome back to the Live Diet Free Podcast. We're reviewing a book called Grit today. It's by Angela Duckworth, who is a psychologist. She's a psychology professor at UPenn, and she studies grit and self-control. So really interesting topics, I think. And her book is a New York Times bestseller. It's got a ton of rave reviews. It's actually a really great read for those of you who maybe don't generally like this type of book because it's too sciencey or that sort of thing. Hers is full of stories and anecdotes and kind of examples of things. So it's not super dense and meaty. It's pretty long, but <laughs> Gray and Mattis were gone for the weekend and I read it in a day. So it's not it's not something that's going to take you a ton of time to get through if you did want to read it. But anyway, the reason I'm doing this book review is so if you don't want to, you don't have to. So let's define grit first. It's probably something you've heard and you kind of have a general understanding of like generally what, what it means. Um, but she defines it as perseverance and passion. Those two things combined are what create grit. And it's one of many characteristics that people can have in varying degrees. So part of the book is about how to get you know, develop more grit, be a grittier person overall. And she says that most successful people have this combination of determination, that they're usually resilient and hardworking, not easily deterred, and they have direction. They know deeply what they want, where they're trying to go, and will not be easily deterred from that. So what I think is really cool is that this is unrelated to talent. And she says that most dazzling achievements are the aggregate of countless individual elements, each of which is ordinary. And that I think is so inspiring because when you really break it down, whatever accomplishment or whatever skill or whatever accolade you're looking at someone and thinking like, wow, that's just so amazing. They have likely done it through a ton of time and effort into individual pretty mundane things. If you look at the best athletes in the world, and they talk to you about their training. They're typically the ones who say, yeah, I've been doing, you know, 100 free throws every night before I go to bed for the last, you know, 30 years or, you know, things like that, that it's, it's generally that part of what separates successful people is that they're not outworked. They put in the reps when no one is looking. I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but what's made them so successful is their attention to those things. And she actually talks about how we focus so much on natural talent and we often use things like, oh, he's a natural or things like that. But really what they do is just kind of let us off the hook and let us settle into the status quo because we're basically separating into haves and have nots. I'm just not naturally a, a gifted athlete, so I couldn't possibly do that. And like, that's not to say that all of us could become elite athletes, because there are certainly other things that um, that factor in, but we don't even put ourselves in positions to try to do all sorts of things. Just because you're not going to be an Olympic athlete 
doesn't mean you can't run a 5K or you can't do you know, whatever physical thing you want, complete a Spartan race or something like that. But a lot of times we just dismiss things as being not an option for us because we don't have natural talent. So basically what she's talking about is like, yeah, talent is a thing, but it's talent times your effort that creates skill. And what that kind of tells us is if you put in more effort than someone with a similar level of talent, or if you put in more effort than someone with a little bit more talent, you can, you can even things out. You can develop the skill just by practicing more and working harder. And then she says that that achievement is skill times effort. So basically, consistency of effort over time is everything. And basically, in those equations, effort counts twice. So you may be born or not born with a, a, a certain amount of talent, but how you develop your skills depends on the effort you put in. And then what those skills help you achieve is based on the effort that you put in. So I just think that's so inspiring. And she talks about how most people quit too early and too often, which I think we can mostly acknowledge in our own lives. Like, yep, I have a tendency when things get hard to, you know, take a break or fall off or get discouraged and just kind of give up. And hopefully this is inspiring to you too, that, you know, you can, you can achieve a lot of stuff just by deciding it's worth the effort to put in. So I was kind of going back and forth on this book because it, a lot of it feels like it's sort of geared towards career type aspirations, but this stuff applies to any goal that you want to accomplish. So we can look at it in a health, um, from a health standpoint and look at, okay, what are the things that you need to devote your effort to? What are the skills that you need to build and whether or not you have any cooking talent or whether or not you have any athletic ability, you can put in the effort to learn the skills that are then going to help you accomplish that thing. So part of what I think is so interesting about this book is just how versatile it is. So whatever area of your life you're feeling like maybe you're lacking grit, maybe you feel like, yes, my health and my weight is the one area that has always just kind of... Um, what is the word I'm looking for, like evaded you, then apply what I'm saying to your health and your weight. If you're feeling like I'm just kind of floundering in my career and I haven't advanced the way I want to, or I'm not, you know, I'm feeling kind of burnt out with what I do, then this applies just as well to those things. So if you're curious about figuring out, kind of estimating your own level of grit, you can go to Angela Duckworth's website, which is her full name, and it's spelled like you would expect. Um, so AngelaDuckworth.com slash grit dash scale. So nothing, uh, nothing tricky in there, but I will link it in the show notes. It'll probably take you, I don't know, a minute, 30 seconds to do. Um, it's only 10 questions, and it's basically they, they're alternating between questions about your perseverance and questions about your passion. And she stresses throughout the book that your grit can change throughout your lifetime, just like everything about our, you know, ourselves, our personality, it can change. So this is just a snapshot in time. And also, like I was saying, you may know that you have more grit in some areas than others. So 
you might find that if you do this as like, okay, am I a greedy person overall that you might get kind of a middle of the road score because you're like, well, sometimes I don't give up easily, but sometimes I do, or I don't give up easily with clients, but I do give up easily with myself. So if you're finding that everything is just kind of like middle of the road because you have some areas of your life that are in different extremes, then you might want to do it twice each with more of a focus. So, okay, when it comes to my work, how gritty am I? When it comes to my personal goals, how gritty am I? And that might highlight for you a difference in things. And what you'll likely find is that, you know, your your grit in one area is higher than another. And I think that should be comforting because it means that you have the ability to be gritty. You're exhibiting it in these other areas. So it's just a matter of applying that to the area that's kind of um, evading you right now. So she talks about, she kind of defines passion because it's something that, again, is kind of cliche and you hear at all these commencement speeches that you need to be passionate about what you do and follow your passions and things like that. She refers to it as having sustained, enduring devotion to a certain thing. That being enthusiastic about something is common, but endurance is rare. A passion is something, is like a compass that guides you to where you want to be. So it's more of like an overarching thing than something super specific. Um, and it's about having the same top level goal for a long time. So when I think about the difference between enthusiasm and endurance, something that immediately comes to mind is like at-home exercise equipment, let's say the Peloton, that a lot of people are so gung-ho when it first arrives and can't wait to you know do all the rides and want to do two, three rides a day. And many fewer people are still feeling that way years down the road. So um, I think generally your passion is going to be something a little bit more broad. Yeah, I think there are some people who are like, I'm passionate about Peloton. I'm passionate about CrossFit. But generally speaking, I think more of the successful people, at least as far as like general population goes, obviously, if you want to be a Peloton instructor, or if you want to be a CrossFit Games athlete, yeah, you got to really devote yourself to that thing. But I feel like for most of us, the the driving passion is less a specific modality and more, I am passionate about prioritizing my health. I'm passionate about feeling as good as I possibly can. I'm passionate about um, managing the symptoms of this chronic disease, that sort of thing. So it's less exactly how you're doing it and more like, what is that compass that guides you? So she actually talks about this a lot when talking about goals. So she divides them into low, mid, and top level goals. And she has a really great visual that if you listen to other episodes, you know, I do my best to describe visuals that I see in books, but you know, you can send me a picture of what you think I'm describing and we'll see how close they are. But basically picture, say like seven small circles in a horizontal line, and then maybe like three or four medium-sized circles on top of them, and then one big circle on top of those. So you're basically making a pyramid with the small circles at the bottom, then the medium, then the one guy at the top. So those are your low, middle, and top level goals. She talks about how a lot of us do positive fantasizing, which is when we have this dream that would be amazing, this top level goal that we love to daydream about. But we don't have any of the mid or lower lower level goals mapped out that will actually get us there. So maybe you have, you know, this picture of like your dream home that's on the water and it's enormous and it has a pool and all this stuff that like that would be a dream. I'd love to live there. My current job's not gonna get me there. I don't I don't I don't know how to get from A to B. It reminds me of the 
South Park episode with the underwear gnomes where their business model is like steal underwear, question mark, profit. <laughs> like a lot of us have like, here's what we want. We don't know how to get there, but like, meh. So she talks about how this positive fantasizing feels good in the short term because you like to daydream. Oh, how cool would that be? What would that feel like? But in the long term, it feels disappointing because you don't achieve it. So maybe you don't actually want to move to to this house, but it could be, you know, you dream about making partner at the law firm or you dream about walking into your high school reunion feeling amazing and super confident and, you know, people dropping their drinks because they're staring at you. It feels awesome to picture that right here and now, but then, you know, when those times come and they haven't happened, um, then, it, you know, then it doesn't feel good. So she also talks about how it's really common to have lots of lower or mid-level goals that aren't unified or we have several kind of separate hierarchies where maybe we have our work goals, we have our family goals, that sort of thing. And that ideally having one goal of utmost importance is ideal, but it, I think it does make sense to maybe have a couple where some people might be able to unify work and family or you know whatever else would be on your your top priorities list but overall the fewer focuses the the more focused you're going to be um so maybe that's how you split it up is just like work and then everything else um but that at the end of the day the more unified and aligned and coordinated those hierarchies are the better if you're enjoying this episode i want to invite you to join us in our coaching program gone for good Gone for Good is our signature 12-week coaching program designed to help you develop the confidence, commitment, and consistency necessary to make reaching your weight loss and health goals inevitable. Our three-part framework helps you learn and master the exercise nutrition big rocks, provides comprehensive support and accountability, and teaches you how to take compassionate ownership of your results. With both group and one-on-one options, we have a Gone for Good package to suit your needs and help you overcome every obstacle between you and the weight loss you're after. Whether you want to lose 5 pounds, 50 pounds, or 150 pounds, we can help you in Gone for Good. For all the info and to join, go to estheravant.com slash coaching. Um, and one of the things she talks about is having focus, like having having the, the grit, the determination, the, the perseverance to reach your top-level goal requires some flexibility at the lower levels so she's saying like a lot of people set these you know maybe day-to-day goals that you're kind of checking boxes and those boxes do lead to an outcome but is that outcome linked to your top level goal or are you just kind of checking unrelated boxes that are a distraction um and also that when where you want to get is unmoving you may have to experiment a little bit, do a little trial and error, just generally be flexible with exactly how you go about doing that thing. So maybe you find that the daily actions you laid out for yourself, the original plan is not working the way you thought it would. There needs to be that willingness to be flexible in how you approach it, knowing that the end goal isn't changing. She talks about how Grit grows as we mature, just kind of naturally, because we're figuring out what's important to us. We've been rejected or disappointed before, and it's easier to bounce back from those things. And we're better able to tell the difference between lower level goals that we can just kind of 
throw to the wayside and those higher level goals that require tenacity. And I think that's such an important distinction because a lot of us, I think even, even as we mature, I think that's probably the hardest of those things is sometimes we, and myself included, are very stubbornly attached to a goal that's like pretty inconsequential. We just want to like do it to say we've done it. And sometimes those zap time, energy resources that would be better put towards something that actually warranted them, something that was, that was more important. Um, and that a lot of us give up too quickly on the top level goals that demand that tenacity that we say, okay, it's feeling too hard to lose weight. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm just going to throw in the towel instead of saying, this is so important to me. I'm not going to give up. I will see what I need to change. I will see how I can go about this differently. I can see what help I need to enlist to make sure that I stay consistent, but I am not giving up on this because it's too important. So if you want more grit, she says to just ask yourself, why am I not as gritty as I want? And that probably your answer to that question, your knee-jerk reaction might be, I'm just lazy, or I give up too easily, or it's too hard, or I'm not capable. Maybe you tell yourself that you're bored, or eh, it doesn't really that matter that much to me anyway. And she says that those are not things that gritty people tell themselves. Gritty people are so committed to their goals that they don't entertain the option of not doing them. She breaks grit into four kind of components. The first one, let me go through all four of them and then I'll go back a little bit more in depth with each of them. So the four components of grit are interest, your capacity to practice, purpose, and hope. And those sort of work through a few stages. And each stage, she says, the, the stages of, of development last can, can last several years each. So interest is your just overall enjoyment in something. Your first encounter with what might eventually lead to a lifelong passion. It's just that. It's just like an opening scene where your interest is, is kind of peaked. But that passion doesn't come about until you've had a chance to discover it in the first place, to develop a ton, and then you kind of spend your lifetime deepening that passion. She talks about how interests are triggered by interactions with the outside world and that you really can't force or predict what's going to capture your attention. So I was thinking as I was going through the book about my career and how I ended up. I had, I don't even know if I knew really what an entrepreneur was. I feel like I didn't really know a lot of business owners. It just wasn't even on my radar that I could or would own a business. I very much thought like, well, I'll go to college and then I'll apply for jobs and then I'll get a job. And like, that's just what people do. I don't know. Um, but I have known for a long time that this is what I want to be doing. I have in my high school, my senior year yearbook, I said something about wanting to own a gym. I had been very, I had, I had been interested in fitness, exercise, overall health. But that first encounter was, I think, me going to the YMCA in high school and doing the Nautilus circuit. I had no idea then that it was going to turn into what it has, that I'm going on year 17 of doing this for, for a job. Um, but initially it was like, huh, I like this. I feel good when I do it. I get some attention from boys and I want to keep doing it. That's all it was. So that was kind of the, the little bit of discovery. And then over years and years, it's developed and it has taken a lot of twists and turns and developed into things I, that weren't even on my radar then. 
initially I was a lot more focused on exercise. I became a personal trainer before a nutrition coach and just throughout the development of my career, I've gone down these different avenues that have then developed into more. And now I feel like it's been 20 years since I was at the YMCA and no, that math is, it's been 20. Okay. Esther, do math here. If I was 16, yeah. Why am I struggling with this math? 26, 36, that'd be 20 years. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was 16 at the YMCA and then I was 19 when I got certified as a personal trainer. So yes, that checks out. Um, so now it's been decades of just continuing to deepen this passion. And now I would say I'm, I'm actually passionate about it. And I'm passionate about helping women find their own health, happiness, confidence, unlocking all of the areas that they've told themselves are not possible or off limits for them, just like I have through my own journey. She also talks about how interests thrive with encouragement and support. So you'll often hear, and maybe you've experienced going to a gym, maybe an Orange Theory or CrossFit gym, or just having a personal trainer, just someone that when you were new at something, encouraged you to continue showing up, helped foster that interest in you, helped you feel like you were welcome there, that you had potential, that you were doing a good job, things like that. So in as far as like the stages of development go, These are your early years. This is you figuring out, like, is this something I want to be committed to? It's when you need those warm and supportive mentors. mentors. It's when the initial learning feels pretty good. It's rewarding that you feel like you're actually getting better each time you show up. And you want to have kind of some autonomy over how you explore this thing. You don't necessarily want somebody who's overbearing, like a, a coach or a a parent who are telling you like, you must practice this much or you must do this thing. You just want to explore a little bit on your own. You want to get some small wins. You want to celebrate those wins and then start to work in some, some criticism and corrective feedback. So this, she'll, she talks a little bit later in the book about developing a passion for things that you're already doing, like in your career, if you're just like, listen, a, I don't, I don't know what I would be passionate about. Um, she talks about how you can feel more passionate about what you're already doing, that it doesn't necessarily mean you need to jump ship to something else. Um, but early on, this is, this is it. So maybe, just thinking kind of a little bit more broadly, maybe say your interest is in health or fitness or something a little bit more overarching like that. And instead of feeling like the first thing you do has to be your thing, you just give yourself the freedom to dabble a little bit, to say, I do like riding the Peloton. I think it's fun. I think the instructors are encouraging. I'm also curious about just meeting up with people in my community and going on hikes. I'm also intrigued by the people I see doing Tai Chi in the park. That Zumba class looks super fun and I would like to not be so self-conscious that I immediately rule it out. I love seeing these strong women who are, you know, lifting heavy things. It'd be really cool to be like that one day. Like just give yourself the opportunity to experiment and explore and see if something piques your interest. You don't need to be a specialist in one specific thing, but you might find that by dabbling at first, 
you do find something that you want to specialize in more that you're like, yeah, yeah, everything's been really fun, but nothing feels as powerful as picking up a barbell. And I want to devote more of my time and energy to that. And in turn, as I develop in that area, I also learn about other things, how to fuel myself for my workouts, what I should be doing for recovery to maximize my training sessions. I learn about powerlifting. I get involved in that community. You just never know what your interests are going to be unless you put yourself in a position to find some. Um, So I think that's really cool. If you're feeling like you're stuck in rut, maybe you don't have interests, you don't have passion, um, and maybe you're thinking you're listening to this podcast more in terms of like your personal life than your work life, just getting out there and doing things is a great place to start. Look at local meetups, look at local Facebook groups, see who you're, see what your Facebook friends are doing in person, what interests them, see what's available in you know, at your community college, things like that. And just put yourself in positions where you meet people and you try things and see where it goes. Okay. So if you're trying to foster passion, she says to start with discovery, you could journal on these things. You could just mull them over. What do I like to think about? Where does my mind wander? What do I really care about? What matters to me? How do I enjoy spending my time? And what do I find unbearable? So basically you can rule out the unbearable stuff and think more about, you know, when you're daydreaming, where does your mind go? When you are watching TV and you're like, oh, that seems so cool. What is that thing? Um, And then like I was just saying, go out in the world and do things. Accept that some trial and error is going to be inevitable and that you don't need to find the right thing or the best thing or your only thing. You're just trying to find a direction that feels good and that you want to keep exploring. So you've got like all of these little um, little trails that you go down a little bit and some of them you're going to be like, I really like this. I want to keep walking down this trail. I want to see where this goes. You're not committing to a lifetime of a certain thing. You're just saying, this has piqued my interest. I want to explore more. And then that development that I want to explore more, that takes time where you're meeting people, you're getting mentored, you're asking questions, you're, you know, you're researching, you're experimenting. And that leads you to the middle years of passion development, which is practice. And she talks about how you need to engage in deliberate practice, which is different from just kind of showing up and and putting in reps. You set a stretch goal in one narrow area of your overall performance, specifically a weakness. You give it your undivided attention and great effort, often when no one is looking. You seek feedback. You repeat until you have all but, you know, eliminated that weakness. And then you set a new stretch goal. So this is, I think, a big part of what separates the successful few from everyone else is that most of us just want to be naturally and quickly and easily good at things. And when we're not, it's frustrating and discouraging and we don't continue to pursue those things. We just say like, well, I'm going to go focus my energy on something that I'm better at. But the result is that we just, we don't grow. And the deliberate practice is the people who are putting in the work when nobody is looking. There, you know, when you have a, an old friend that you haven't seen in a few years and you see them and they're, you know, just looking amazing and they tell you, yeah, I, you know, lost a bunch of weight. I got certified as a personal trainer. I did a Spartan race. I started competing in this. I've, they've just like done this in, incredible shift. And you're thinking like, 
like, like, how did this happen? Like, what's the secret? And the secret was, well, yeah, you haven't seen me in a few years. And I was putting in work day in and day out to change all of these things about my lifestyle. And now here I am. This is the kid in sports practice who is getting there early, who's staying late, whose parents have to, you know, force him to come in to eat dinner and go to bed because he just wants to practice nonstop. These are the people who go to their, um, their superior at work and say, you know, what do you think I need to work on? And how can I go about doing that? Let's make a plan. And then they do those things. Maybe they enroll in a course or a certification or they find a mentor and they are at home practicing Excel things or writing speeches and giving themselves, giving them to themselves in the mirror or to their families. And suddenly this person who was previously so nervous about public speaking is just knocking everybody's socks off. This is when the person who you thought was on par with you gets promoted over you. That the practice itself isn't necessarily enjoyable, but the outcome of it is. And I have this in bold. Nobody wants to show you the hours and hours of becoming. They'd rather show you the highlight of what they've become. And Nowhere is that more true than social media, where you see the before and after picture, or you see the business coach saying, I went from $0 to $500,000 in 18 months, and I can show you how. They're skipping the messy middle, which is I put in a ton of time and energy to overcome my weaknesses, to get out of my comfort zone, to practice, to, you know, to do the things day in and day out when other people weren't. You've probably heard that in order to master a skill, you need to put in about 10,000 hours of effort, which is, you know, for a lot of people, breaks down to about 10 years if you're doing 1,000 hours of practice a year, um, which I don't know if you necessarily need to be clocking those hours, but I think it's just generally helpful as a reminder that becoming really, really good at something doesn't come easily. And if you are feeling down on yourself that you're not a better cook after practicing for a few months, if you don't feel like eating the right amount to maintain your weight is coming easily after a year or so. If you aren't in the top of your age group in the local 5Ks when you took up running two years ago, I think it helps give you a good perspective that it, it, doesn't, it likely doesn't mean that you just don't have what it takes. It likely means that you just need to continue putting in the work that if you really want to be winning your local 5Ks, then you're not just going for a few mile run a few days a week and then hoping that you do better on race day. You're doing speed drills. You're maybe working with a running coach to perfect your actual stride. You're getting the shoes that support your gait. You're adjusting your nutrition to support your um, your energy, your uh, your activity levels being really good at something doesn't just happen to you very, very mostly. <laughs> there are those outliers who you're just like, okay, yeah, everything you're good, you know, everything you do, you're good at. It's very annoying. But those people are few and far between. Most of us, if we want to be good at stuff, we have to put in this deliberate practice. What I think is interesting is that the alternative to that is just kind of going through the motions. And most of us are going through the motions anyway, which means that, you know, we're spending a good chunk of the time on the thing regardless so why not do it in a way where it's not mindless and we're not staying stagnant? Why not devote yourself to that practice? So this is kind of a minor example, but thinking about food tracking. A lot of us 
go through the motions of, yeah, technically I put some foods into my fitness pal. So yep, I'm tracking my food, but you're just going through the motions. You're not trying to do it to the best of your ability. You're not saying, oh, you know what? I'm not sure if this entry is right. How do I find out? You're not saying I'm really struggling to create this recipe. How do I make sure I'm doing it correctly? That's a deliberate practice. And if you're going to be making any effort anyway, why not make a little bit more effort to do it in a way that actually will benefit you more? Think if you have been for six months, like, yeah, I'm tracking my food, but I don't know, nothing's really working. I'm not really seeing much of a change, but I don't know, maybe I'm not doing it right. I'm just not really sure. We have these complicated dinners and I'm not sure how to log the recipes. So I've just been, I don't know, kind of winging it. That's really frustrating. You're likely to give up on a tool that's really useful because you haven't said, you know, a week in, I don't know how to do this thing. Let me find out how. Who can I ask? Where do I get the answer to so that I don't keep doing this in a way that I'm not sure is right? You can learn so much so quickly just by being more intentional about what is the weakness here? What is the thing that I need to work on? How do I put the effort in to improve that thing? Whether it's asking for help, whether it's just figuring out myself. And then where do I get feedback to kind of confirm, okay, this, this thing has been elevated to an acceptable level. I can move on to something else or I need to continue working on this thing. How do I do that? She talks about how helpful it is to make your deliberate practice a habit. And to just kind of lean into when in the day am I most comfortable doing those things that don't necessarily feel good, but I know the payoff is going to be worth it and then doing it then. So I think no better exercise, no better example of this than exercise where if you keep doing it at the same time in the same place, what used to take a lot of conscious thought like to get started becomes more automatic. And I've said before, this is probably going to take longer than you want it to. It may not be a matter of weeks or even a couple months. It may be a matter of three months, six months, a year before it starts to feel more automatic. But if you keep showing up at that same time and place, it is going to eventually. And I think that's the kind of suggestion that most of us chalk up to being like too basic. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I should do it at the same time every day, but here's why it doesn't apply to me. And yes, I know our schedules are chaotic and all over the place. And maybe you, maybe you have a lot of unpredictability in your schedule that makes that hard to do. But if that's the case, how can you still do it in a way that starts to feel more routine? If your day always starts at a different time, can you say, okay, the first thing I do in the morning is some form of movement. doesn't matter what time it is, but it's the first thing I do. Or on the days that I work, I wake up and I exercise first. There are ways that you can lean into your schedule and make that happen. But you're just making your life harder by winging it all the time and telling yourself, well, I'm going to do it at some point. It'll get done. That's when you find yourself at the end of the week and it, it didn't get done. So we ask our, our clients all the time, if you want to work out three times this week, when? What time? Where? What are you going to do? Because the more you pre-commit, pre-decide, the easier it's going to be to actually show up. She also talks about something that I think is really helpful and that is what she calls making emotion-free mistakes, where you just acknowledge, I'm not perfect, especially when I'm learning something new, when I'm in the practice stage of a new interest. I'm going to make mistakes, and I don't need to get bent out of shape about them. I don't need to make them mean something major about me or my potential or anything. I can just basically, eh, okay, no big deal. We can be self-aware without judgment. So then the middle years lead to the later years, which is when 
the deeper purpose starts to shine through. So generally what becomes a passion starts as something self-oriented. We have an interest in something, we practice it, and then the purpose kind of reveals itself from, from there. That the purpose is a purpose beyond ourselves, the intention to contribute to the well-being of others. So using myself as an example, when I first started going to the YMCA, I didn't have, there was no purpose attached. I mean, the purpose was, I like to feel strong and I like that boys are paying attention to me, but there was no purpose, purpose outside of myself. And that interest led to me practicing, which then eventually developed to the purpose of, you know what, I want to help other women experience this type of transformation themselves to develop the confidence that I have through the gym and to improve their own lives the way I have. So you don't feel, don't put this pressure on yourself to feel like, okay, I need, I need purpose immediately. The purpose will likely reveal itself. And you see this a lot. Like when somebody makes a career change and says, I never in a million years thought I would be doing this, but I had some experience that has now led me here. I, you know, I met so-and-so and I got involved in this passion project. I was volunteering or someone in my family got diagnosed with some you know, little known medical thing. And now I'm devoting my life to the advancement of research to find a cure or things like that. You don't need to have a passion right from the jump, but you can also cultivate passion in things you're already doing. She says that when asked, only a small minority of workers identify their work as a calling but that any job can be a calling if you believe that the work is important. And she uses an example of like garbage people or sanitation workers where, you know, one person might say like, yep, I'm just a, you know, lowly garbage guy. I just ride this truck and deal with all this stinky trash. And then you have another person who is like, this is the most rewarding job in the world. The people in this city rely on us and we do such an incredible service to the city and the people in it. And I'm just, I feel so strongly about how important this job is. And I feel so good about being able to play a role in the community. So that might seem over the top if you don't feel that way about, you know, garbage pickup, but it applies to literally any occupation. She uses another example of um, I don't know if she says secretaries or assistant, administrative assistants or whatever, but, but that kind of, of role, somebody who's, you know, receiving guests, answering phone calls, doing scheduling, that sort of thing. And how some are basically like, yep, I'm just here to clock in and clock out. And I, you know, what I do doesn't really matter. And then other people are like, this whole company would come crumbling down if not for me. I know the ins and outs of this more than anybody here. If not for me, the C-suite people would have no idea what they were doing or when they were doing it or how they were doing it. And I'm the glue that holds everything together. It's the same job, but how they think about it is completely different. So I think that's pretty cool. If you might be saying like, well, I do, I like my work, but I don't know, like what purpose does it serve? You can find purpose. And to do that, look at what you do and how it connects to other people and the bigger picture how what you're doing could be an expression of your values. So, you know, I think people who might work in something that's like client facing or public facing or things like that, it might be easier to see, okay, somebody comes in here really worked up about something and I help them and they feel better. That's a purpose. Or I'm, I work in mental health and the, or 
or the medical field or these these areas where kind of the extension to how you're contributing to the well-being of others is very obvious. But it, it can apply to any field. If you're an accountant and you're just like, what do I do? Like, what do I have to do with the company? I'm just crunching numbers. Yeah. And if not for you making sure that the business was above water, then it wouldn't exist. And the people who do face the client or face the public wouldn't be able to do what they do. So you might just feel like a cog in the wheel or like what you do individually isn't important, but it can be. And just learning to think about it and explore what could that look like can help you find the greater purpose in what you're already doing. Another thing she notes is that it can, what you're doing can benefit yourself and others at the same time. So you can just really love what you do and it can also benefit other people. It's not an either or where either you're in a selfish or a selfless area of, um, of work. It can be both. You can make a lot of money and also do things that benefit the, the greater good. She talks about how, like I was saying, it's never too early or too late to cultivate purpose and to start with, like I just said, reflecting on what you're already doing. Think about ways that you could change your current work to enhance its connection to your core values. So maybe you're in a position where you could talk to someone about doing a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, that you realize the thing that really drives me, I would love to have this be a bigger part of my role. And maybe it kind of develops into something that's a little bit more like custom made for you. Um, and that having role models can, can make a big difference. The last piece of grit is hope. And specifically, the expectation that your efforts can improve your future. She talks about how something called learned helplessness, where suffering alone doesn't equal hopelessness, but suffering that you think you can't control does. So feeling like things are just totally out of your hands is what makes you just feel like, well, why bother? There's nothing I can do here. But that just like you can learn to be helpless, you can also learn to be optimistic. And to do that, you work on making it a habit to search for temporary and specific causes of suffering, as opposed to them just being permanent and pervasive and just like how the world is. She says, when you keep searching for ways to change your situation for the better, you stand a chance of finding them. When you stop searching, assuming they can't be found, you guarantee they won't. So there's a, there's a book that I'm going to review. Interestingly enough, I have two copies of it because it has at times um, come up on lists of books that I want to read and I've ordered it and then put it in the bookshelf and then not read it. So now I have two. Um, it's all about having a growth mindset. So I'll be getting more into that in a future review, but just kind of the cliff notes here. If you have a growth mindset, you believe that you and other people can change and that setbacks are opportunities. I talk about this in the episode about setbacks. So episode 114, how to overcome setbacks and still reach your goals. I talk about a growth mindset there. Um, and this is as opposed to a fixed mindset where you feel like your ability to learn like can't be trained. You just, you either have it or you don't. You're good at some things, you're not at others, and that's just how it is. And you, if you have a fixed mindset, you are more likely to get derailed by road bumps. And she says that most of us have both an inner fixed mindset pessimist and a growth mindset 
optimist. And I think that's super true. I think most of us have gotten better at listening to the pessimist and or more often listen to the pessimist and it kind of drowns out the optimist, but that we all have both within us, which means that we can work on at least giving them equal airtime, if not tipping the scales a little bit towards the growth mindset optimist. As you would expect, growth mindset and grit go hand in hand. And one of the things you can do to focus more on the growth mindset and the positive is to just not overreact when you experience setbacks. Take a step back, assess them, see what you can learn, stay optimistic. Don't immediately jump to, well, this happened because I'm a lazy, miserable, unmotivated failure who's never going to be successful. Hmm, You know what? This happened because of this. Here's what I can learn from it. Now I'll be better equipped moving forward. The same situation, two very different outcomes. A growth-focused person is able to find optimistic explanations for things. They persevere and they seek out challenges. Someone with a fixed mindset has more pessimistic uh, explanations of adversity. And they either avoid or quickly give up on challenges. One thing she says that you can do to work on making your growth mindset bigger or more prominent and your fixed mindset smaller is to give that fixed part of your brain a name like controlling Claire or overwhelmed Olivia, something where you can just acknowledge like this response, this reaction is not me in my entirety. This is just a part of me who's reacting this way. So that will help you remember, okay, there are other ways to look at this situation here. I don't have to immediately go with this, the sky is falling reaction to everything. So in addition to what I've already mentioned to help you expand your growth mindset, you can also just focus on kind of updating what you believe about intelligence and talent. Hopefully this episode has helped you see that it's not all about talent and that you're not just kind of stuck in, I know certain things and I'm not good at others, that those you know, that talent isn't that crucial if you're making the effort in the first place um, and that you are more than capable of learning new things and growing and developing and overcoming. You can also practice optimistic self-talk. So when you find yourself in those negative spirals, just feeling like, you know, woe is me, this is the worst thing ever, pause and say like, okay, I don't even need to believe this right now, but if someone else were here who was more optimistic than me, me, what might their explanation of this be? Or if I was talking to my daughter or my best friend and I was trying to help them see another perspective, what would I say to them? Just kind of practice doing those things to show yourself that it's possible. And again, the more you do it, it's like any of the mindset stuff. The more you do it, the easier it's going to feel, the less ridiculous you're going to feel. And the more you start to believe it and the more naturally it starts to come to you. She also mentions that um, if you find yourself being extremely pessimistic and like I can't even begin to entertain any sort of positivity or optimism that finding a cognitive behavioral therapist can be a game changer Um, and then lastly ask for help when there are things you don't know how to do or goals you want to accomplish and you're not sure you know what direction to go an interest that you want to foster potentially into a passion ask for help from people who can help you make that your reality On that note, she talks about the importance of surrounding yourself with other gritty people and gritty groups to build your own. That, and this is, you know, not going to come as a surprise to anyone that the people you surround yourself with shape 
you know, who you are, um, that in, in the short term, you're going to be more compelled to just kind of conform to whatever the norm of that group is. So if you join a running group and they're very fair weather, they're like, yeah, we, we like to kind of, kind of like to run, but we only do it if the weather is between 65 and 70 degrees. And if it's, there's a slight breeze and if there are no hills, um, which like sounds like ideal running conditions to me, um, then you're probably going to be a fair weather runner too. But if the group that you join that meets up outside the you know the Lululemon in your town, if they're like, yeah, we don't love running in the rain, but this is our time. We look forward to it every week. We're here, rain or shine. It's just a great way to you know get some movement and talk to our friends. And you're going to find us here every single week, regardless. You're probably going to do the same. You're going to be more likely to do what the group does. And then over longer periods of time, that culture is then going to shape your personal identity, your values, and kind of who you become. So the community thing, I think, is just so important. I talk to so many women, especially in the post-pandemic world, who are just feeling so isolated and unsupported that maybe they're the only person they know who's really trying to be committed to making these health changes. Maybe they feel like they're, you know, kind of normal or their older friends are resentful of the changes they're trying to make and don't want to change themselves. So they just try to bring you down. It's so important. I've read so many books about surrounding yourself with people who inspire you to be your best self. And I don't think that can be understated. So whether that's in person, whether that's joining a community like we have at EA Coaching, I think one of the best things you can do for yourself is just, you know, kind of put yourself out there and get to know people who are living lives like you want. Maybe you're interested in starting a business, but you have a, a corporate job and you just start going to entrepreneur, you know, networking events or to the local chamber of commerce and just getting to know people who are doing the thing that you want to do, who are proving day in and day out that it's possible and help you see that there might be a path forward for you. So if we can help you do that, you know where to find us, EA Coaching. We've got the podcast. Obviously, you're listening to that. We've got the Facebook group by the same name. We've got our foundations program, and we also have our one-on-one -on -one program, all of which have incredible communities. So thank you guys for being here. I hope this episode was helpful for you and that you'll work on cultivating your own grit to achieve your top-level goals. And I'll be back here next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Live Diet Free Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've listened to them all, I appreciate you being here. One way you can help this podcast succeed is to subscribe, rate, and review it. If you don't mind doing those things, I would love to thank you with a copy of our weekend survival guide designed to help you have weekends you enjoy that don't set you back from reaching your goals. Just send a screenshot of your review to admin at estheravant.com and we'll send it over. And don't forget to check out estheravant.com slash coaching for all the info about our Gone for Good coaching program designed to help you develop the confidence, commitment, and consistency necessary to make reaching your health and weight loss goals inevitable. Our three-part framework helps you learn and master the exercise and nutrition big rocks, provides comprehensive support and accountability, and teaches you how to take compassionate ownership of your results. With both group and one-on-one -on -one options, we have a Gone for Good package to suit your needs and help you overcome every, every obstacle between you and the weight loss you're after.